gun buyback programs happen in a lot of communities in Michigan. You can unload unwanted firearms to a police or sheriff's department with the promise that these guns will be destroyed. But a new investigation shows it's not quite as simple as that. The problem becomes when communities convey the impression to people that these guns are being melted down or incinerated or somehow taken out of circulation. Um, Because it turns out that that's actually not literally what's happening. Today, gun buybacks and what actually happens to the weapons. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. New York Times reporter Mike McIntyre recently wrote an article about gun buyback programs, and he started out looking specifically at a buyback initiative in Flint. Hey, Mike, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. You touch on a number of Michigan communities in your story, but you start things off in Flint, which is a town that has about as much reason as any to pare down guns in the community. What did you find happening there in September? Well, one of the things that became clear looking at this was that towns like Flint and Lansing was another community that we mentioned in the story. They do have buybacks that are either sponsored by taxpayer dollars or some combination of that and charitable donations in the case of Flint. And as you pointed out, the effort there is to remove guns from households where they may be unwanted. I think there's not any expectation that you're necessarily going to reduce incidents of gun violence or crime, but there's a feeling that by removing them from a home setting where they may increase the risk of a spur-of-the-moment tragedy like a suicide or a domestic violence incident, that it makes sense to incentivize people to turn them in if they want to. And it's important to note that while we mentioned Flint and Lansing, that this is actually a practice that is statewide in Michigan. Um, apparently, the procedure there has been that communities who wish to get rid of unwanted guns <laughs> turn them over to the state police. And state police post lists of them online for 30 days in case somebody has a stolen or lost firearm they want to claim. And after that point, they turn them over to a private company in uh, Missouri called Gunbusters for disposal. Right. Are there many companies like Gunbusters that do business in the U.S.? There's really a handful of them. There's not a, a huge amount, but they've been growing in popularity over the years. They're basically answering a demand. Um, police departments have a tendency to become almost landfills for unwanted firearms. If you imagine for a second, you know, the accumulation of guns that are seized in crimes, guns that are collected from buybacks. Um, also, sometimes they're replaced by police force upgrades of service weapons. These weapons can accumulate in storage lockers, evidence rooms, and they become a liability problem. Um, And so companies like Gunbusters offer their services for free. They will take the guns and destroy them. Now, you know, on the premise that there's no such thing as a free lunch, you do have to kind of wonder, well, how do they make their money off of this? And that's sort of where the rub is in, in this whole equation, is that they are not destroying the entire firearm most of the time. They're removing one component, which under federal law, uh, specifically the Gun Control Act of 1968, the receiver or the frame of the gun is considered itself a firearm. And so if you take that part out, you destroy it, all the remaining pieces are not regulated and they can be sold online as a kit. Right. So just for for those who maybe aren't as familiar, the, the frame or the receiver is is kind of a recognizable shape of a gun, but it's not the barrel. It's not uh, it's not the trigger. 
And that is the, it was it was absolutely fascinating. There's there is video footage that Gunbusters and other companies have of running these these frames through the grinder. And, you know, to the casual observer who's maybe not as familiar, it might look like, hey, the gun's getting destroyed. But it's really it's really only a percentage of of the weapon that that is being either ground up or incinerated. Mike, how did you find out about about this this side industry within the gun business? We've been looking at the times over uh, the past year at the various ways in which government uh, sometimes inadvertently helps sustain the commerce and culture of guns in in the U.S. Um, as you know, it's the subject of a great debate uh, in this country about, you know, the proliferation, easy availability of guns. And this one aspect of it really came to light in looking at how police agencies get rid of the, the inventories of guns that they that they have that nobody wants. Um, and, you know, some of them do turn them over to steel mills. They'll use a foundry or um, some other type of a, an incinerator to melt them down. But the increasing availability of these services that offer to do it for free, it can be very enticing to uh, especially small departments or cities that are budget strapped and they're, you know, don't want to spend the money on it. So if you have a company like this that is willing to take this stuff off your hands, you know, it can be an easy solution to a kind of a, a headache. And so that that is sort of how we got into this is looking at, you know, how are these businesses that offer to do this for free? How are they making their money? And it became pretty clear that the way they're doing it is by you know selling as you say the vast majority of the components of the gun on online so these these parts kits that are sold from the the pieces of of the firearms that are not destroyed can you tell us a little bit about the completeness of them like if you buy a parts kit is it the kind of thing that could assemble a full firearm well, that's one of the things that's curious about this, because the companies will say that they are simply selling parts for people who might be missing a piece for an old gun that is no longer manufactured. Um, and it's helpful to gun enthusiasts who might want to repair a, a firearm in their collection. That's certainly true, but most of these companies are not selling individual pieces separately. So you're not looking online and finding them offering for sale the grip from a handgun or the barrel of a rifle or the stock of a shotgun. Instead, they're selling these kits, which are largely complete, except, of course, for the key missing ingredient, which is the receiver or the frame. The receiver really applies to a long gun or a rifle. The frame is what you talk about in terms of a handgun. So these kits in and of themselves cannot be assembled into a working firearm. But if you were to then plug in that missing piece by obtaining it elsewhere, you would have a working firearm. Is there any way to track what happens with these, this is my phrase, not the industries, these reconstituted guns after they are, in essence, resold? Most of the time, no, because the remaining pieces, absent the, the receiver of the frame, do not have serial numbers. Now, you know, this, there are some exceptions to that, depending on the manufacturer. Um, some gun companies over the years have had different quirks of how they might apply the serial number to different pieces of the gun. But usually it's on the receiver or the frame. Typically, what's left after you get rid of that one component, there would be no way to easily trace the origins of that gun if it was later reconstituted and used in a, in a crime. You would be able to trace the receiver or the frame because that is the serialized, regulated part of the gun. But the rest of it, um, generally, no. 
I don't mean to suggest that these are the only, uh, you know, untraceable guns on the streets, but what do we know about the role that untraceable guns play in American crime stats right now? So ghost guns have become uh, an increasing problem. They're turning up in greater prevalence at crime scenes. Um, and what they refer to is basically an unserialized, untraceable firearm. And they are often made through um, a combination of a gun parts kit, like the kind that we're talking about, put together with an untraceable receiver or a frame. The way you would do it is obtain an unfinished receiver or frame that does not have a serial number on it. Those can be purchased individually without going through a background check many times. And if you have some degree of skill in welding and drilling and some minimal number of tools, uh, it's possible to put one together in a couple of hours. I mean, you can go on YouTube and find videos of people doing that. So if you were to obtain that untraceable receiver or frame and put it together with one of these parts kits, you would conceivably have what you might call a ghost gun, a gun that is not traceable um, and would not be able to be followed back to find out who the owner was if it was used in a crime. We need to take a break. When we come back, we get into the legal loophole and the police perspective. Stay with us. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Mike, it's easy to understand that this is not exactly what some people might have intended, you know, when they hear that guns are being collected and that they'll be destroyed by the law enforcement agencies that, that do collect them. But, I mean, is there anything illegal in what's happening here? No, actually not at all. Um, and how you view this is really kind of dependent on where you stand in the great American gun debate in some ways. Um, gun enthusiasts will look at this and say, well, of course, they're just destroying the receiver or the frame because that is legally considered to be the firearm. And if they sell the rest of the parts, then what's the big deal? People who are concerned about the proliferation of guns or the easy availability of them will look at this and say, well, you know, that's semantics. And if a policy decision has been made to destroy the guns and you're not really doing that then, that, then that's a problem. But under the law, they are being handled uh, entirely appropriately. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms offers guidelines on how to properly destroy a gun. That's because it's not as simple as simply tossing it in the trash. And the ways in which they describe it online, if you were to look at the ATF website, they, they show illustrations of whole guns being sliced up using a blowtorch, basically. And what's left are just sort of pieces that can't be put back together again. However, they also have a caveat. There was also a allowance that says that if you were to destroy the receiver or the frame, either through crushing, melting, or shredding, that is okay as well. 
So that is what these companies are doing. And that is what the police agencies usually are aware of, is that they are just destroying that one component and all the rest of it is fair game and can be sold. You talked to a number of different entities, organizations, churches, and others that, that have collected guns for disposal. Would you say that by and large they were aware of the loophole? No. Most of the public officials and uh, community activists I talked to in reporting the story were not aware of this. They were under the misimpression. I don't think it was necessarily deliberate much of the time, but they were under the misimpression that these guns were being fully destroyed, um, often through you know being melted down or crushed completely or something of that sort. Again, it seemed to be, as in the case of Flint, a, just a misunderstanding of the process. But the problem becomes, if you misunderstand the process, and then you're broadcasting that to the public, and people who may have a gun that they want to get rid of and they feel strongly about having it destroyed um, are surprised to find out that that's not actually what's happening. I feel like a lot of folks in law enforcement are, uh, by definition of their jobs, a bit more conversant in the gun industry more generally and might be aware that this is what's going on. Did you have a sense of how law enforcement officials felt when you asked them about the sort of secondary market in gun parts that the buybacks present? It's kind of difficult to, to, to say across the board because, I mean, you, you do get different points of view depending on, you know, how various police officials regard, for instance, the efficacy of buybacks or the problem of, of gun violence in particular. You do have some police officials who feel strongly about trying to get guns off the street and they think buybacks is a, a useful tool for doing that. But in terms of like how the gun is then destroyed, I, I think a lot of it, the sense I got was a lot of it is simply driven by economics. I mean, you know, they they view the need to maintain these inventories of unwanted guns as a problem. They create liability problems. They create a financial burden. Uh, they have to you have to keep track of these if you're going to keep them in storage. When a company comes along and offers to sort of take all this stuff off your hands for free. You can see it's a pretty easy step, you know, for that point to sort of go along with it. And I think a lot of police agencies are aware of what happens to the parts because the contracts that these companies have with law enforcement usually say that the company will sell salvaged parts and scrap metal. The scrap metal, of course, is what comes out of the crusher when they destroy the receiver or the frame. But the salvaged parts means all the remaining pieces that are put together as a kit and sold. So... I think they're fully aware of it most of the time, um, but I think they just made a decision that this is a convenient um, and efficient way to get these things off their hands while, you know, legally sort of narrowly fulfilling the obligation to have them destroyed. Mike, do you think that there would be much of an economic incentive for somebody to handle gun destruction or incineration if it weren't for this loophole that existed that allows for a secondary market? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the gun busters, just take them as an example, because they're the biggest one out there. They flat out said uh, to me that, hey, you know, if the police departments want to pay for this, if they want to pay to have the gun fully destroyed, that they can do that. And they have done that in some cases, very small percentage. But interestingly, it's mainly some federal agencies like the Secret Service has paid gun busters to destroy the entire gun. But they pay for it. So if you're if 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 the police department is willing to give gunbusters the money to put the whole gun through their pulverizer, um, then you could accomplish that, and gunbusters would you know make their money, and everybody would be happy. But that would require budgeting this into 
police department budgets and finding a way to, to pay for it. Mike, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by our podcast editor, Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kapansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our interns are Olivia Meradian and Lauren Neong. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Our podcast music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. It's good to have you along today. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.